0: Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Risby, and I'm joined today by my co-host Astrid Edwards and we are positively thrilled to be interviewing Kavita Bedford about her debut novel Friends and Dark Shapes. In this novel, Kavita asks through an unnamed protagonist, how do you inhabit a space where the landscape is shifting around you where your sense of self is unraveling what meaning does time have in the midst of grief it is a novel of love and loss of constancy and change but most of all I think it is a novel about looking for connection in an estranged world Kavita, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. Could you start by telling those who are unfamiliar a little bit about Friends and Dark Shapes? So Friends and Dark Shapes is basically
1: the arc of one year where a young unnamed narrator moves into a share house and over the course of that time she comes to terms with a lot of issues around sort of Growing up, coming of age, a lot of issues in Sydney, but also kind of, you know, wider sort of universal issues around globalisation, around gentrification, race and kind of tensions within, you know, what does it mean to find a home in a city? And the backdrop is she's also dealing with the grief one year later after her father passes away and she's comparing the city of then with the city of now.
2: That is a beautiful explanation of your work, Kavita. I grew up in Sydney and I now live in Melbourne, but one of the things that I find beautiful about your work is that it really captured that kind of inner west of Sydney area where I grew up, where I went to university, where I rented my first homes outside my family unit, etc. And it just gave me a real sense of place and time in my life when I was Leaving home, growing up, figuring out what on earth I was doing. And my question was how difficult was it to capture that physical time and moment in life?
1: Yeah, that's a really beautiful question. And also so wonderful to hear because I think that's so much of what I was looking to engage in a reader and have that sense of, you know, familiarity and kind of trying to anchor that very pivotal stage and coming of age is often in our kind of late twenties these days. And that whole sort of sense has really changed and moved in terms of when these big milestones actually occur. And I think it was, it was a really interesting exercise to do. One was just, you know, having a lot of external stimuli. So choosing music of that time choosing paintings and artwork and kind of surrounding myself of that kind of particular feeling. But the other thing was, you know, during that stage in my own life, I kept a lot of notes, mainly on my iPhone actually, just sort of jottings continually of conversations and bits and pieces. And I had them for years and I just didn't really wasn't quite sure what I was ever planning to do with them. But I had when I sort of decided what the arc of this book was going to be and where I was going to go with it, I just had this whole kind of almost database, if you will, of language and semiotics and of conversations and things that just immediately plugged me into into that time and place. And I think it must be sort of like a hangover from the researcher in me. But it was actually really amazing because from that I could kind of tentacle out, if you will, and try to capture a mood of a time which is a very existential and strange, but kind of wonderful exercise to to try to endeavour to do.
0: Kavita, you mentioned that you are a researcher. You've got an MA of Applied Anthropology from Macquarie University and you're also a Churchill Fellow. How did that inform the way you went about writing? Did it shape the way you think of the world and did that translate to the page or did you sort of separate that? hat, so to speak, off to the side.
1: Yeah, it's always a difficult thing to know exactly what your brain is doing at times with separation and kind of, you know, merging. But definitely I think one aspect that was really interesting for me was so, I mean, anthropology is so much the local is global and the global is local. And so that relationship where, you know, I was choosing I'm choosing in this book to write about Sydney and a kind of pocket of Sydney, Redfern, but also sort of surrounding suburbs, And so I really wanted to look at that localised setting but how it completely relates to global issues and obviously universal themes but also global issues and politics that we're facing today and right now. And that's absolutely shaped. I mean, I don't think both my parents are anthropologists actually and I think that lens is I don't even know how to separate that. I've always seen society and culture and politics in that kind of relationship to each other So I think that very much shaped, and with the Churchill, you know, and with quite a few other projects I've done, but especially with the Churchill, I spent a lot of time interviewing people, and I think one skill or one aspect, and you would both know this so well, is that active listening and active listening and empathy. Mm -hmm. And the way that that feeds into writing I don't think can ever be valued enough. It's such an important part. And, you know, I think so much of these books on how to write and these kind of, you know, various articles and things sometimes don't talk about that sort of, you know, that space where you are actually kind of absorbing and taking in other people's stories. And that might have absolutely nothing to do with the major work that you're working on, but it it threads through things. So I definitely don't see them as separate. But having said that, I had to do a lot of work to take away my analytical lens when I was writing creatively.
2: I find your background in anthropology and your family background in anthropology quite interesting. The only other author currently writing in Australia that I know of that has training in anthropology is Kerridan Dovey. I adore her fiction and non-fiction actually and I find it so interesting how you both actually take the political but into the minutiae of someone's daily life, into the tiny little experiences or flashes that we get, you know, at the sentence level or the paragraph level. And the, the one that pops up to me straight away is the scene where the housemates are talking about getting a cleaner and why they should get a cleaner, why they shouldn't get a cleaner, why cleaning is terrible and capitalist, but also how they might very well go on to Airtasker and get a graduate or, you know, a, a wealthy white graduate to bolster their drinking money and clean the house. And just those kind of little tiny social interactions, social commentary, I just found on every page, which makes this work quite deep. What a terrible word that I just came up with. You're was, both looking at me. Choice of word You could have done better. I, I did not do well there, but I was, I was, my point was it's quite intricate and very enjoyable to read.
1: Mm, Thank you. And, I mean, what a wonderful person to be in a sentence with. (laughs) But, yeah, I think it is so interesting how anthropology informs. And, you know, and there's so much... Very narrative forms of anthropology as well, like a lot of really beautiful stuff that's written. And I think when you are writing a lot of case studies, you know, the narrative comes into that so importantly, because you're trying to contextualise interviews within this very broad framework of a political, a cultural, a social, a structural positioning. And a lot of the time you've talked to one person from a rural community and using them to kind of, you know, leapfrog into all of these other big issues. So there was definitely that, but it was also learning to, I'm not going to say all academia has this at all, but certainly with journalism and and academia where some background is, there is by nature a kind of explanation or can sort of be, when it turns into creative writing, can get didactic. And that was a really... Difficult thing to untrain and to not try to explain to all the readers what I was trying to do. And, you know, a lot of the time, especially in early stages, not necessarily having full confidence that what I was trying to do would pay off and that it might just seem like a very mundane conversation about hiring a cleaner. <laughs> so there was a lot of curbing of that desire to kind of jump in and say well what I'm trying to do here is place this in this kind of framework so yeah so it was was definitely an interplay of taking what I have as a background and training but also trying to quiet in a lot of those things and reading a lot of poetry to do that actually to just get away from and go into lyricism
0: because I'm going to ask this really clumsily. So forgiveness from you and all the listeners in advance, please. Can you talk to us about the tenses? Because I'm sure there is an important literary word that Astrid knows to describe what you do, but you write in the absolute present tense. One of the sentences I've pulled out is, the year after my father died, I move into a share house. And when I read that, I want to say moved because you're speaking about something that has already happened but you're speaking about it in the present tense. Tell me about that choice to approach the narrative. What was the reasoning behind it?
1: Yeah, I wanted to make it incredibly immediate. I knew a lot of the topics I would be talking about, especially something like grief, um, was going to go and those passages tend to become a lot more languid and stretched out and the previous book, or previous version of this book that I had written that I'd worked on for three years or so, I didn't have the present tense in it. And it was just wading through text and it was wading through emotion. And it had this very kind of stuck feeling. And when I was questioning whether I would continue, one of the things that I realized I wanted to do was to replicate a sense of a current generation, if you will, for want of a better word. And a lot of the things that I was trying to say about this generation and the immediacy of the way we consume the through no fault, but you know the way we consume the kind of Twitter text, you know Instagram, like all of these very kind of languaging is very immediate in its way of being delivered. And it wasn't so much like that I was trying to rewrite a Instagram post. But I wanted something of that immediacy and I think what I was so interested in sort of almost coming back to that initial question you asked Astrid of trying to capture a moment and a time, that was a lot of my desire in this book. I wanted to capture feelings and emotive qualities so I knew that grief would be coming up and that it would be sort of that stretched out and kind of quite liminal space And to punctuate that, I just wanted everyone in the share house and all the sort of younger people to be doing everything in the immediate now.
2: Friends in Dark Shapes is your first work, your first novel. And it is often considered a really lazy question to ask debut novelist, how much of you is in your work? And I want to avoid that. But I also want to ask you, Kuvita, you are writing, you know, in this immediate present tense, you use I throughout. And I'm wondering, did you find bits of you seeping into the story you were telling? Because, you know, you are you writing in the present tense, you were writing I. Was there a, a blend? Did it seep in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's such a hard question to also answer, not just to ask, but to answer because as you would both know as well, you know, writing is just so much crafting. It's not as if it's this act that takes place. It's not as if it is immediate in the way that the tense is. It's such a long, drawn out process, but it's also so much editing and recrafting and reshaping. And there is so much sort of discipline and form going into it that to even say that this would replicate the, my my life or my version of how I think is not quite right. I mean, there are certain autobiographical elements for sure, but there was also a very clear decision within me and it it formed a lot of my approach to this and it was a lot of my questioning around it where I was working for many years in kind of race-related work, so for the last sort of six, seven years. And one of the things that becomes very problematic sometimes is that desire for any voice that is not from a mainstream kind of perspective to then be turned into an identity politics story. And I felt very resistant about having this story framed in that way. And so there was quite a, you know, in many forms, a kind of political, but also strong choicing of how I wanted to situate the eye and where I wanted the personal to blend, but also where I just wanted to actually be critiquing and commenting on aspects of society.
0: Kavita, I, I loved reading the book so much. I think it was enhanced for me by a lot of personal crossover like your narrator, I'm Indian-Australian. I spent my late 20s living in Redfern and smelling, what did I write down? You describe it at some point. The mix of jasmine in the air and the and the sea air. Like I I could, I could, I've lost my sense of smell in the last couple of years and when you wrote that, I felt like I could smell it again. It was so beautifully evocative of that place, not just in what you saw in Redfern in your late 20s when you were there but also the smells and the the sounds and the the elements that you perhaps forget otherwise so i've got to say i i really want to thank you for the postcard back <laughs> to a time that i sort of had left behind i think otherwise i wanted to ask you about the timing of the book because you're looking at a group of friends in a sharehouse in redfern in their late 20s they're all on the cusp of 30 I wonder if you had been writing 50 years ago, I imagine that coming of age would have been 19 or 20, not 28 or 29. Was that something you thought about when you were writing that this coming of age turning point has moved in recent generations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming of age stories is probably one of my favourite genres. And I was sort of writing this book and Part laughing, but part also really considering, you know, what are the definers of coming of age? Is it just age or are these, you know, and I think at one point in the book, it's sort of they, they're mulling it over themselves. Like, what are the landmarks and the milestones and is it marriage? Is it buying property? Is it having a family? Is it having a steady career? Because all of those we've moved into this much more kind of temporary space around things, some through choice, some not through choice. And I saw that age and and that kind of impermanency around a lot of these values, a really interesting thing to explore. And, you know, I think with so many books around kind of generational kind of issues, it gets really politicised in a petty way like it becomes this kind of competitive generational thing and I just wanted with as much generosity as could muster to look at what does it mean to be seeing yourself as part of a casual workforce for the next however long perhaps life and where is there absolutely you know emancipation and freedom and kind of these ideas of you know neoliberal independence and where are there these really terrifying prospects of not actually having roots and what does it mean in a city like Sydney which I think is happening in so many places around the world where you're born in it and you are pushed out of it and you're forced out through payment structures through housing. Housing was obviously a very big part of this book therefore choosing a share house as well because I knew I wanted to look at homes and housing and that kind of without sort of making it so highlighted but that it's a very Australian dream as well around, you know, there's a kind of entitlement and an idea that we deserve to own a home and I wanted to sort of gently just explore that and, yeah, I think that there are so many aspects around coming of age that being thrown into question and, There are a lot of people at at all stages of life, but, you know, that you're meeting that don't have any of these at all. And, yeah, I just wanted to explore aspects of that.
2: All of the characters, particularly the characters who live in the share house, do feel different types of stress and sadness and worry and concern about their employability, the gig economy, living in a share house, their potential to ever buy their own home and you know there is a lot of stress uh, and concern attached to that but beyond that this work also deals directly with grief and the kind of separation one can feel if one experiences a major loss when other people around you, including other people of your own age group, haven't experienced that kind of loss. And a very leading question here, Kavita, but what was the impetus for you to directly explore that kind of grief?
1: Yeah, I think grief is such an interesting area because it's so personal. It's something we, it feels often like it's almost the one taboo left in society. Of what we don't discuss um, or discuss in a way with any kind of education or thought behind it. And I don't think that it's individual's fault. I think that, you know, whether it's sort of aspects of ceremony or ritualisation, but it's not something that we have come to feel comfortable about, yet it is probably one of, along with death and loss, one of the most likely things to happen to all of us on some level. And I wanted to explore, yeah, so the narrator losing her father and the father standing in, I guess, also for so many aspects around country and city and Anglo-Australian kind of roots as well and history. But I was very aware that this could become a novel about a personal grief of a loss of a father and there's amazing work done around that. Like I, you know, I was reading books as well, like, you know, H is for Hawk and grief is the thing with feathers. And I was reading a lot of grief, beautifully, beautiful grief literature. (laughs) And the thing though, that I realized I wanted to do was look at, like you're saying, what does it mean to live in a big city where everyone feels as if they've lost something? And to, again, not try to qualify people's sense of loss and I think it is really hard and I think for again very different reasons for different people but some people have experienced tragedies and and losses on scales that we cannot fathom and some on scales that are a bit more imaginable or close to home but we haven't experienced and others feel like they're talking about something very small and almost feels easy to dismiss those people as well but that is what we also live in you know that is society and I guess I wanted to look at a city like Sydney where you have migrants living side by side where you have refugees living in a city where you have people who know what it feels like to have lost a country and then people who know what it feels like to have lost family people who know what it feels like to have lost a partner and you know then talking about people who have lost their job that week or even down to younger people who by choice have gotten rid of that lame job that they didn't want or you know or a feeling upset because they're on tinder and they, they can't find love but this kind of hope and loss dynamic that occurs within all of us and Yeah, I I just wanted to see what it means to rub up against each other and where there's so little room for listening because we're all contending and dealing with our own shit. And, yeah, and what, what does that actually mean to stop in the middle of that and take it on? And a lot of the time it's too much. It's too overwhelming. We have to steel ourselves up, but how do we also sort of crack open a little more so that there's room for that? And I think it was very interesting, this book sort of coming out online as well in the middle of a global pandemic where exactly those issues are being wrestled on this huge scale that, you know, when I was even writing the book and thinking about so many of these issues, it didn't feel global at that time. It still felt quite select and it felt like a book that might appeal to people who have felt loss in some ways but again you know just being continually taught all the time there's a global feeling of loss and grief right now and loss can be just you know losing your everyday routine and what does that actually feel like to have lost and it's your life and the life that you had and you know you were there in Melbourne and what does it feel like to lose, you know, not being able to go out in the in the day. And all of these things that we become so acclimatised and habitual, you know, habitualized to as well, and then it feels like the person next to you in this comparative kind of model has got it better or has got it worse, and so we look to blame them a lot of the time.
0: And, yeah, I just wanted to eck that out a little bit. Kavita, can you tell me about, I was about to call it a device, but that feels perhaps too confected the choice to leave your narrator unnamed. It made me think of so many other works, made me uh, think of Rachel Cusk's outline trilogy, made me think way back to Daphne Demoria and Rebecca, you know, where you're trying to, where to me it, it sort of minimised the central character and really reaffirmed to the author their importance or their power within a broader story, why was that a choice that you made?
1: Uh, so one is stylistically and absolutely what you're what you're saying, you know, a lot of the stuff I was reading. So I was reading at the time Jenny Offal, Rachel Cusk, Brian Washington, and who all kind of used that that device. And I loved it for so there's that kind of, you know, just aesthetic element. But I was drawn to these for a reason. And I think there was a very so There's a very strong choice that I've still found quite hard to actually articulate in a way and something of it is what you kind of hinted at of wanting the narrator to not completely dominate the story of grief and to have her experiences, and I guess it's almost like that kind of anthropological lens as well, you know, to have more her stories be these kind of ways to discuss issues in our society so there was a bit of that in a strange way. I felt like naming her was going to make it a much more kind of character novel. And it's not, you know, it's a novel of vignettes and ideas in many ways. And I was also reading Valeria Luiselli, Sidewalks, and kind of the way she trades through. And I was reading a lot of flaneur writers, and that's sort of also a lot of where this came from. It's funny, in the whole time I was writing, I never had a desire to name her. It never came up. It wasn't what I was interested in. Uh, That's not to say that's not something in the future that I'd be interested in, but I also found it in a gendered way and a racial way incredibly freeing and not having to mark her as a representative of anything felt like there was actually room to write about what I wanted to write about. And she kind of, in this very strange way, got out of the way but also felt strong in being unnamed because it felt like she was politically sort of situating herself in a way that I think a lot of men do in literature and feel completely comfortable with as being okay with, with being the observer and saying this is what I see and this is how it is. And they don't need to define, categorise and put it all into some kind of neat pocketed, oh, but this is just my character. And so there was an element of trying not to minimise and it's scary I think to do as well behind (laughs) things and I wanted her to just quietly and hopefully generously but claim those spaces a little more.
0: Kavita, thank you for taking us inside and behind these rich vignettes that you've shared with us in Friends and Dark Shapes. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute delight. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation with Kavita Bedford. You can of course buy Friends and Dark Shapes through Booktopia or wherever your favourite neighbourhood bookshop happens to be. If you enjoyed this episode of Anonymous Was a Woman, please tell people about it. Tell us about it. If you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and if you can leave a rating or review, that would be very much appreciated. We'd like to thank the wonderful folk at Hachette Publishing for making this episode possible. I'd also like to thank Bad Producer Productions and Future Women.